Our Holy Father, we thank you for your incredible mercy and your love and your grace that you have lavished upon us. That we should be called children of God and that is who we are. How you died on the cross in our place for our sins, taking care of our guilt and our shame and our condemnation, satisfying God's wrath that was geared towards us. And that when you died, you said, it is finished. All of our sins have been atoned for, our sins in the past, present, and future. And so we thank you for that. And we praise you for that. We lift your name up on high as we honor you. And Lord, I pray that as we open up your word, I pray that you'd speak to us, make yourself known to us, open up our eyes, our hearts, and our minds. May may we see the gospel truth as we look at Paul, Lord, and and how he's proclaiming the gospel before kings and governors. And how he talks about the wonderful benefits of the gospel and points out our desperate need for you, Lord Jesus. May you convict us. May we run to you. May we flee to you. May we rest in you. May we put our faith in you. And may lives be transformed, Lord. And I pray for those that are in sin, living in darkness and in ignorance under the power of Satan. Lord, I pray that you would convict them and that you would radically save them. As we come and we get to sit at this table, may these gospel truths just overwhelm us. So come, Lord, and speak. We love you and we praise you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Well, good morning. It's good seeing all of you guys. Welcome uh, to Forest Park on this beautiful uh, Sunday morning. If you're new here with us, uh, we just want to welcome you and thank you for worshiping with us. There's a card in the seat in front of you. Please uh, just take that card, fill that out, and all we want to do is just call you and pray for you. And then after the service, you can just drop them off uh, at the drop boxes. Uh, but if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Acts, uh, Acts chapter 25 as we're continuing our series through the book of Acts. We've been in the book of Acts for 30 six weeks. Uh, God willing, we'll have this week and three more weeks, and then we'll be wrapping up all 28 chapters. And so we got a lot of work to do, two chapters to cover. Uh, So let's get into it. So we see that Paul is on trial, and things go from bad to worse. It was bad that he's rejected by his own people and even by the Jewish uh, council, and it goes from worse when now he becomes the plot of a terrorist attack, and then he finds himself as a defendant in a court case that seems to go nowhere, and yet Paul finds himself uh, courageous as he humbly submits his life to the power and purposes of the Lord. Now, in Acts chapter 24, verse 27, it says that he spent two years in jail. So from Felix, who heard his case and did not make a decision, he was two years in prison. Before now, he gets his opportunity to present his last two defenses before Festus and King Agrippa. And so in these two chapters, really what I want to focus on is his last defense speech in the presence of King Agrippa. Because his speech is not technically a defense speech. It's not like, hey, I'm innocent, can you please set me free? But rather, they can't make any decision on his case, but rather it was him presenting the gospel 
before uh, King Agrippa and Festus and all the dignitaries as he was talking about how he was commissioned uh, from, from Jesus. And so really what I want us to do is kind of pay attention to the universal need uh, where he talks about the universal need of the wonderful privileges of the gospel. And by bringing up the universal needs of the wonderful privilege of the gospel, he kind of talks about our desperate need for a Savior. So I'm going to warn you, in uh, chapter 25, I'm only going to read the first couple verses, and I'm going to summarize the rest so that we can get in uh, Acts chapter 26. And if you want to for yourself, you can read those chapters throughout the week. So let's get into 25, summarize it, set the table for Acts chapter 26. It says this, Acts 25 verse 1. Three days after Festus arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. The chief priests and the leaders of the Jews presented their case against Paul to him, and they appealed, asking for a favor against Paul, that Festus summon him to Jerusalem. They were, in fact, preparing an ambush along the road to kill him. Festus, however, answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was about to go there shortly. Therefore, he said, let those of you who have authority to go down with me and accuse him if he has done anything wrong. So obviously, as I mentioned, Paul finds himself two years in jail. Felix is dismissed. He got fired uh, by Emperor Nero because of doing a bad job in how he handled the riots in Caesarea. And Festus comes into power. Now, now again, we don't know much about Festus. We know that he's been in office uh, for about two years where he died in office. But what we see a little bit from our text, he seems to be a little bit more just and more moderate than his predecessor, Felix. And so Festus kind of gets right into action as he looks at all these unresolved cases that he has to deal with. And one of the unresolved cases that he has to deal with is the case of Paul. So from Caesarea, he goes into Jerusalem to meet with the Jewish leaders to talk about the case. And what we see is these Jewish leaders, their feelings towards Paul after two years have not changed. They still want to kill him. And on top of that, their method haven't changed. They still are planning an ambush where in this ambush as he's being transferred from Caesarea to Jerusalem, there they can kill him. And yet Festus does not buy into their plan. He doesn't play to be their puppet, at least not initially. He wants to make sure things are done in order and in decency. And so after he returns to to Caesarea, uh, Festus takes the bench where the court hearing begins and Paul faces his accusers. And in Acts 25, uh, it talks about how his accusers are kind of intimidating Paul. They stand all around him as they're bringing their charges against Paul. And Paul simply denies these charges. Now, technically, Festus at this point could have dismissed the case, but instead he decided to play politics. He wanted to do the Jews a favor. And so he asked Paul, are you willing to go to Jerusalem and face your charges there and testify about all the charges that are brought against you? And Paul, silencing discussion, wanting nothing to do with it, basically saying, look, all of these charges there that are being brought against me are completely false. And then he says, look, I'm not afraid to die. I don't fear death. But if I'm going to face the death penalty, if I'm going to face the sentence that's going to lead to my death, I'm not going to face it under the angry Jews, but rather under the Roman law. So the rights that I have as a Roman citizen, 
I appeal to Caesar, which means if I appear before Caesar and he finds me guilty and I get the death sentence, that's fine with me, but I'm not going to Jerusalem. And so Festus finds himself in a tight spot. In fear, he cannot let Paul go because he, he, he wants to, 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 to do the Jews a favor, but he also cannot accuse Paul and sentence Paul with anything because he cannot violate the Roman law. So he talks to his advisors about it. Do we just let him go knowing that some of these charges are not going to stick? Or do we charge him ourselves? And his advisor says, no, send him to Caesar. And he grants him his appeal to Caesar. Now, now not long after this appeal was granted to Paul, uh, we see King Agrippa uh, kind of visits out of a courtesy visit to Felix, who is the new governor. And Festus sees this as an opportunity because he's dealt with this case. He doesn't know what to write about Paul, how to send him to Caesar, what even to say. And Festus, who's familiar with imperial politics and who understands the, the, the Jewish law and the controversy around anything, thought he would consult King Agrippa about this. And so King Agrippa finds himself curious about this case with Paul and said, look, let me listen to this case himself. And so the next morning, despite having just one day's notice, we see how um, Festus, Bernice, and King Agrippa, they put off this grand public scheme of events. Luke describes it as great pomp. In other words, they create this wonderful event with lights, camera, actions. They're dressed in their, their fanciest clothes, and all the dignitaries and all the nobles are gathered in this large amphitheater. It's all decorated. It's all souped out, all to hear the, the declaration from Paul to hear Paul's appeal. And then Festus stands up, and with great rhetorical exaggeration, he says, the entire Jewish community wanted to kill him. But because I'm such a good governor, I have saved him. And because he appealed to Caesar, we're here to gather information about him. And so he sets the agenda. And Paul finds himself before King Agrippa, festers all the nobles and all the dignitaries of Judea, Caesarea, as he brings his appeal. Now, now before we move on, a couple of things that I think is important. The very first thing that, that we see so far in our text, that again, I've just summarized, but you can read it for yourself. We really see the fulfillment of, of God's word. Because in Acts chapter 19, verse 15, Jesus originally promised Paul that he would testify before Gentiles, kings, and all the people of Israel. What's happening? Paul gets to testify before Gentiles, kings, and all the people of Israel. Jesus even pre previously warned his disciples that they would be brought before kings and governors and that they do not need to be afraid because the words of wisdom will be given to them and they'll be able to speak with great boldness. What's happening in our text? We see Paul who's witnessing before kings and governors. And so we see how the Lord is sovereignly working out his purpose, how Lord Jesus is faithful to his words. Now, before we get into his last defense speech before King Agrippa, it's very important for us to understand this, okay? King Agrippa and Festus could not decide the fate of Paul. They could not decide whether he was guilty or innocent. 
They could not bring any charges. They could not do any sentencing. So in other words, what Paul was saying was not technically a defense speech because his future was not in their hands. The only reason for them gathering is so that they can write a letter because they had no idea what Paul's being charged with so that they can gather some information they've heard from the opposition. Now they want to hear from Paul so that they can send Paul to Caesar with a letter of, hey, hey, Caesar, here's the charges brought up against them. Why don't you hear the case? Here's the information that we have gathered. And so from their perspective, King Agrippa's perspective uh, and Festus' perspective and all the audience and all the dignitaries, they, their purpose was simply to gather information. That was from their perspective. But what the Lord was doing, he was sending his messenger to, messenger to appear before them as he faithfully brings the gospel. One of the things I love about Paul He's not pouting. He's not complaining. He's not trying to strike a deal with them and saying, hey, guys, we all know the kind of bind we're in. We know these charges are bogus. We know you have to write a letter. We know you don't want to misstep with Caesar, so let's just call it quits. You let me go, and I won't say anything. He doesn't do anything. Rather, he uses this as an opportunity to boldly proclaim the gospel. So let's look at Acts chapter 26, verse 1 as we see how Paul starts his defense in proclaiming the gospel. Acts 26, verse 1. Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and began his defense. I consider myself fortunate that as before you, King Agrippa, I am to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially since you are very knowledgeable about all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So the very first thing that Paul does in his defense speech on in proclaiming the gospel, he shows great respect and reverence to his audience. He stretches out his hand. Now, in our culture, for me to stretch out your hand might be to get your attention or to get you to be quiet. But in that culture, by him stretching out his hand, that is a show of respect towards King Agrippa. And by stretching out his hand, I don't know if it was a hand like this or a finger or tooth, whatever it was, it was a sign of respect. And then he gives him kind of a compliment in a sense where he says, I know that you are familiar, and I'm glad that you're the audience because I know that you're familiar with Jewish law. You're familiar with the controversy between Judaism and Christian Christianity. And so what I want you to do is be patient with me as I present my story to you. And so we just see just his humility and reverence that he shows towards his audience. And then he moves on as he begins with his Jewish upbringing. Look at verse 4. It says, all the Jews know my way of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own people and in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time, and if they're willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand on trial because of the hope and what God promised to our ancestors, the promise our 12 tribes hope to reach as they earnestly serve him night and day. King Agrippa, I'm being accused by the Jews because of this hope. Why do any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? In fact, I myself was convinced that it was necessary to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. So, so what Paul does in describing his strict upbringing in Judaism, he says, I was raised as a Pharisee. 
And really one of his major themes that he's talking about in our text and all of his other defense speeches, he's bringing up this idea that his faith in Christ is not an absolute new faith. He is not abandoning his heritage to Jewish tradition. He is not abandoning Judaism. Because at the fundamentals of Judaism and the Jewish tradition was the resurrection of the dead. All Jews believed that God was going to send his Messiah to make all things new and raise the living and the dead. And he said, we even in our worship services gathered and prayed for it night and day. So the only reason why I am in trial is because the hope that all of us Jews have in the resurrection of the dead. And in verse 8, he asks this rhetorical question, but it's more of a statement. Look at verse 8. He says, why do any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Because central to the Jewish tradition was the resurrection. The Jewish prayed for its fulfillment, that God would send its Messiah and make all things new and the living and the dead will be raised and living in the presence of the Lord and the new heaven and the new earth. And that's what they longed for and that's what they hoped for. The only difference was between Paul's faith and the Jewish faith is that they refused to believe that Jesus was resurrected. Because if Jesus was resurrected, that would mean that Jesus came from God. And if Jesus came from God, that would mean he would be the Messiah. God approved of what he'd done, raised him from the dead, and then they would have been guilty of killing the very Messiah. So Paul says, the hope that I have, it's not a new hope. It's not an abandoning of our faith. It's rooted in Judaism. And he says, even I myself, in verse 9, he says, I refuse to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead because I refuse to believe that Jesus was from God. Look at verse 9 as he talks about how he persecuted Christians again. Verse 9 says this. In fact, I myself was convinced that it was necessary to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I actually did this in Jerusalem, and I locked up many of the saints in prison since I had received authority for that from the chief priest. And when they were put to death, I was in agreement against them. In all the synagogues, I often punished them, tried to make them blaspheme. And since I was terribly enraged at them, I pursued them even to foreign cities. I was traveling to Damascus under these circumstances with authority and a commission from the chief priest. So, so, so Paul, in verse 9, admits that he was against Jesus. He refused to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. He refused to admit that Jesus was from God and was the Messiah. And anybody that would believe it, he attempted to eradicate. He approved of their death. He persecuted them, threw them in jail, and even tortured them and trying for them to curse Jesus. But then something happened. He encountered this Jesus that he refused to believe. Look at verse 12 again. He says, I was traveling to Damascus under these circumstances with authority and commission from the chief priest. King Agrippa While on the road at midday, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those traveling with me. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice speaking to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
It is hard for you to kick against the goats. I asked, who are you, Lord? And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. And Paul says, I hated this Jesus, wanted to eradicate the Jesus and anybody that believed in Jesus. And yet, when I was on my way to do all of that, I saw a light and I heard a voice. And this wasn't some personal experience because all those with me traveled around me and they themselves saw the great light and they themselves all fell to the ground. And then I heard this voice, Jesus speaking to me. In verse 14, look at it again. When I fell to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, that sentence is fine because that sentence is found in in chapter 9. But notice an additional sentence that Paul adds, the second part of verse 14. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Paul adds that. Now, now, more than likely, these were the original words from Jesus, so I don't think Paul added that. I just think in chapter 9, Luke did not include it because of his audience didn't think it was necessary. But because for this audience it was necessary, he, in, he included it. So, so what does it mean, this, this second phrase, um, it is hard for you to kick against the goats? Um, goats were, were sharp sticks that was used to prod and redirect animals, disciplined animals, almost like whips. But, but, but instead of whipping them, you had a sharp stick and you would poke them. So if you want them to go left, you would poke them. If they're, and they're going right, you would poke them. So in other words, what Jesus is, is, is saying to Paul, Paul, why are you kicking against the direction and the discipline of God? Why are you fighting the conviction of the Holy Spirit that that appeared when you heard the message of Stephen before he was killed? In other words, a nice way of looking at it is Jesus saying, stop resisting me and start submit to me. And rather than Jesus using a go to prod him, I think Jesus used a giant log to hit him over the head and say, enough's enough. Stop it. You submit to me right now. Paul says, this is what I experienced. And he says, and this is the instruction I received from the Lord. Now, verse 16 to to verse um, 18, that's really going to be where we're going to spend most of our time camping out. Because when he's talking about the instructions and the commissioning he received from the Lord, that really becomes the climax of his message as he talks about the wonderful benefits of the gospel and indirectly reveals uh, our universal need for a Savior. Look at verse 16. But get up. Stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you've seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your people and from the Gentiles I'm sending you to them. Verse 18. Now, if you like to highlight or make notes in your Bible, circle, make notes, highlight verse 18. That's our main verse. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and share among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Paul receives this commissioning from Jesus. And notice the similarity between the the, the commissioning of the prophets and the commissioning of Paul. Just like Ezekiel was commissioned and instructed to stand up on his feet, so Paul was instructed to get up on his feet. 
As in the case of the prophets, the Lord sent Paul and promised to protect him as he delivered his word. And the Lord did it with his prophets in one way or another. And in the case of the prophets, Paul was supposed to be a servant of the Lord and a witness of the Lord. And what Paul does in verse 18, I think verse 18 is brilliant and really profound, and I wish we had two hours to talk about it, but we don't, okay? So I have 20 minutes. But in verse 18, he's almost indirectly in his commissioning addressing his audience of the universal need of a Savior as he's revealing to them the spiritual conditions. And by revealing to them their spiritual condition, he's also talking about the wonderful benefits of the gospel. Now, Paul and his commissioning could have been vague. He could have been like, yeah, Jesus appeared to me. He told me to go and be his his messenger, that I am Jesus. But he gives specific instructions. And by talking about the wonderful benefits of the gospel, he's revealing to Agrippa, Festus, and the rest of the audience, this is why you need Jesus. So if you're taking notes, here's the very first benefit of the gospel. And again, this is going to force the audience for self-examination. The very first benefit of the gospel is this. The gospel sets people free from spiritual confusion and ignorance. The very first benefit of the gospel, it sets people free from spiritual confusion and ignorance. Look at verse 18 again. He says, I'm sending you to them to do what? To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. What does the gospel do? The gospel confronts people who are spiritually blind and who are living in darkness and takes them out of that darkness into the light. In other words, it takes people who are spiritually confused and who are ignorant, who are dead in their sins and opens their eyes so that they can see and transfers them into light so that they may see the reality of life. And Paul even talks about this concept in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. He says, In their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. You see, Paul knew that it was true for him and for his audience. It was true for him. He was spiritually confused. He was spiritually ignorant. He was blinded. He was living in darkness until he met Jesus Christ. It is true for his audience. They're spiritually confused. They're spiritually ignorant. They're blind. They're living in darkness. And this is why they need Jesus, to open up their eyes, to take them out of darkness into light. And not only is it true for Paul and true for them, it's also true for us. Think about the world we live in. A world that is spiritually confused. A world that is spiritually ignorant. It's where eyes are blind and we're wandering in the darkness. Like what in the world is going on? What we call sin, pride. What we call love, lust. And we call right, wrong. The only conclusion is confusion and ignorance. Why? Because they're living in darkness. Their eyes have been blinded, 
And what do they need? They need Jesus Christ to come and open up their eyes, to set them free, to take them out of darkness into light. And so a question maybe you need to think about, are you spiritually confused and ignorant? Are you living in darkness? Are you blind? And some of you might be saying, you know what, I'm not blind, I can see perfectly. Yeah, I'll give that to you. But you're still living in darkness. And what, even if you have 20-20 vision, what can you see in darkness? Absolutely nothing. And this is why you need Jesus, to open your eyes, to take you out of darkness into his light as he addresses his audience. The, the, the second benefit of the gospel, not only does the gospel set you free from spiritual confusion and ignorance, but the gospel also sets people free, if you're taking notes, from the power of Satan. The gospel sets us free from the power of Satan. It's bad enough that you're blind and in darkness, but you're also under the power of Satan. Like, look at verse 18 again. I'm not making up this stuff. He says, I am being sent to them to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to, to God. In other words, right now without Christ, we're living under the power and rule of Satan. But what did Jesus come to do? He came to set us free. He came to open up our eyes, to take us out of darkness into light, under the rule and reign of Satan, and under the rule and reign of God. He even says this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 3. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air and the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and our thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. But God was rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ. Right now, if you are not in Christ, you're under the power and the rule and the authority of Satan. You're living in darkness, and the only thing that is waiting for you is destruction. Paul even says in Ephesians, you are children of wrath because you're under the rule of Satan. And, and I think one of the things we have to understand, it's easy for us sitting in church and we look at the, the insanity of our culture and we think sin is out there. No, it's not out there, it's in here. It's not sometimes our culture that's under the rule and reign of Satan. It's all those living in darkness, which means it might be even some of you. And this is what we have to understand. There is no middle ground here. You're either under the power of Satan or the power of God. You're either enslaved to Satan or enslaved to God. There is no in between. And how do you know you're under the rule of Satan? Well, what's your attitude towards sin? Or you're constantly carrying out the, 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 and acts on the, your fleshly desires? 
Are you constantly following the commands of Satan? Indulge yourself. Justify yourself. It's not that bad. Just keep on doing what you're doing. You got this. You're the master of your, your, your own ship. You got this. You can handle this. Or are you under the power of God where you're submitting and you're surrendering and you're putting to death and you're looking to Christ as you're trusting him and fleeing to him and running to him? And so Paul doesn't use verse 18 to condemn his audience and saying, you guys all stink. You are blind. You're living in darkness. You're under the power of Satan. No, but what is he saying? He says, no, this is why you need Jesus. You need Jesus to open up your eyes, to take you out of darkness into light, to take you away from the power of Satan and into the power of God. And it's the same message for us. I'm not standing here and condemning you. I'm saying, this is why you need Jesus. You yourself cannot get under the power of Satan. You yourself cannot get out of being blind and walking in darkness. You need Jesus, who is the light, who's come into the world to set the captives free. So look to him, run to him, flee to him as you've been made alive in him. And then he continues the third benefit of the gospel. Not only are we being set free from spiritual confusion and ignorance and from the power of Satan, but the third one, if you're taking notes, is that gospel sets us free from guilt, shame, condemnation, and eternal punishment. The gospel sets us free from guilt, shame, condemnation, and eternal punishment. Look at verse 18 again. Why was Paul sent? I've been sent, verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sin. Now that phrase, forgiveness of sin, is a loaded phrase. It's not just rub-a-dub-dub, your sins are forgiven but it almost has this connotation. This is what Jesus did for you. In your wrestle with sin, in your in bondagement and your enslavement to sin, where you feel the guilt of it and the shame of it, where it's condemning you and you know eternal punishment is awaiting for you, how do you deal with it? You try better, you do more, you try harder, Paul says, no, this is what Jesus has done for you. On the cross, he took care of all of the guilt of your sin. He took care of all of the shame of your sin. He took care of all the condemnation. He took care of the eternal punishment. So now because you are in Christ and when you find yourself wrestling with sin, what did Jesus do? He took care of it on the cross. He took care of that guilt, that shame, the condemnation, and the eternal punishment. And without Jesus Christ, we're simply crushed by our guilt and our shame. We're simply crushed by our condemnation where we condemn ourselves and we tell ourselves, I'm not good enough. I'll never measure up. I'm just going to, 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 to just continue in my sin because that's just who I am. And that's what sin does. It crushes you. And the only thing that ends up with sin is destruction and eternal punishment. And he says, this is why you need Jesus, who died for all of your sins, past, present, and future, who covered that guilt, that shame, 
those self-condemning voices in your head, now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The eternal punishment, he satisfied the wrath of God. So he looks at his audience. He doesn't condemn them, but he says you need Jesus who can open up your eyes, take you out of darkness into light, set you free from the power of Satan, and set you free from the guilt and the shame that you're carrying with your sin, the condemnation and the eternal punishment. And then the last one is absolutely brilliant. If you're taking notes, the gospel provides disinherited wanderers a share among those who are sanctified. The gospel takes us. We're wanderers, we're nomads, exiles, and it gives us a share, an inheritance among those who are sanctified, belong to God. Look, look at verse 18 again. It says, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sin, and here's the part, and share among those who are sanctified by faith and loan. Now that idea of a share among those who are sanctified by faith alone it almost has this idea. It speaks of this concept of a home with unimaginable comfort and impregnable security. Think about our culture. What do we desire most? Comfort, security. Seriously, you... In your deepest core, you desire comfort and security. The reason why you buy your, the, the type of car you buy or you build a, kind of a house you're building or kind of landscape you're doing, why? So that you can be more comfortable and so that your kids can be safe. We're, we're, we're all after these things. And what Paul is saying, I get it, but that can only be found in Jesus Christ. Think about this. To live in darkness, under the power of Satan, overwhelmed by guilt and shame, how's that going to produce comfort and security? It can't. It might hold out to you uh, comforts and securities. It might promise you comfort and securities. And you might for a while, a small time, uh, get these comforts and securities. But what happens to our comforts and securities? They're constantly fleeing. They're constantly going away, and we run after them like, where are you? That's what happens when you live under the ruined reign of Satan. There is no comfort. There's no security. But when your eyes have been opened, and you live in the light, and you've been set free from the power of Satan, and you now live under the rule and reign of God, he holds out this promise of comfort and security, not immediately, but in his kingdom, an eternal kingdom. You get a share of the pie. You get a share of the kingdom, inherit the kingdom, not as a servant, but as a son and daughter of the king. Now, what's Paul's point here? What's the source of all of these blessings? Like, what's the source of our eyes being opened and us being taken out of darkness into light, taken out of the rule of Satan under the power of God? 
for forgiveness of our sins where we've been set free from our guilt, our shame, our condemnation and eternal punishment. And now we share among those who are sanctified an eternal kingdom that can ultimately satisfy. Who's the source of all of that? Jesus Christ is the source. And it's only by placing our faith in Jesus who lived a life we could not live, who died and suffered on our behalf, who took all of our sins upon himself, faced the wrath of God to buy us with his own blood. It is only in him that we can be set free, brought into light, living under the rule and reign of God, enjoying his blessings. Now, for the rest of verse 19 to 23, Paul kind of keeps talking on his commission. I don't have time. We're almost out of time. But what I want us to do is I want to look at verse 24, and I want to show you the responses to verse 18, to the gospel. Look at the very uh, first response in verse 24. As he was saying these things in his defense, Festus exclaimed in a loud voice, You're out of your mind, Paul. Too much study is driving you mad. But Paul replied, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. On the contrary, I'm speaking words of truth and good judgment. For the king knows about these matters, and I can speak boldly to him. For I am convinced that none of these things has escaped his notice, since this was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. Verse 28, Agrippa said to Paul, Are you going to persuade me to become a Christian so easily? I wish before God, replied Paul, that whether easily or with difficulty, not only you but all who listen to me today might become as I am except for these chains. The king, the governor, Bernice, and those sitting with them got up, and when they had left, they talked with each other and said, This man is not doing anything to deserve death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been released if he had not appealed to Caesar. So here we, we see Paul just boldly and just intellectually and just a stunning way as he talks about the benefits of the gospel. He's confronting his audience with their spiritual condition. And notice there's two responses in the text, the third one I'm going to add, Okay. The very first response to the gospel is Festus. What does he do? He interrupts Paul. He yells out and says, Paul, you are out of your mind. You're absolutely crazy. All this studying has driven you insane. I think the best way to categorize that response is a response of irreligious. And what I mean by that is you look at Festus' response, who, who, who Paul believes in the resurrection, to believe that we were living in darkness and he transferred out, out of darkness into light, that we need our sins to be forgiven, that we need Jesus. Festus is looking at him and say, I'm not blind. I'm not living in darkness. I don't need Jesus. I don't need my sins to be forgiven. I can do whatever I want to do. There's no consequences to my actions. I can eat and drink for tomorrow I'll die and life would just go on and I'll probably stop existing. Who cares about any eternal ramifications because life is here and here right now. And that's Festus' response, irreligious. I don't need this. And Paul even said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, 
For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. It's the power of God. And so Festus heard the word of the cross, this Jesus who's opening up our eyes, taking us out of darkness into light, setting us free from the power of Satan, taking care of all of our sins, giving us a share of the inheritance. Rubbish. Foolishness. I don't need that. And maybe some of you, you might be thinking that right now, and that's your response, a response of irreligious. And let me tell you, that is a wrong response because it's only going to lead to destruction. The, the, the second response is Agrippa. Now, he's a, better, he's a little cool cat. He dodges the question. Look at how he responds to the gospel in verse 28. Are you going to persuade me to become a Christian so, so easily? In other words, the best way that I like to describe his response is the description of religious. Paul, don't you know who I am? I'm king of the Jews. Don't you see my royal priesthood attire? Don't, can't you tell that, that I know the law? Can't you tell that, that I know about Jesus, but I simply don't need Jesus because I got my status, I got my career, I got my clothes, I got my religious performance and my good behavior? And that's the response of religion towards the gospel. I'm good. I don't need it. I got my performance. I, I, I have my attire. I have my status. I have my career. I can figure it out all by myself. I'll look to me instead of looking to Christ. That's the response of religion. The third response, not in the text, but just so that you know, those two irreligious, religious, wrong response, the only response is what? Faith. It is only by faith as we look to Christ, believing I did live in darkness. He opened up my eyes. He transferred me from darkness into light. He transferred me under the power of Satan. Now I'm living under the power of God. And now I am trusting him continually that my sin has been taken care of, that he's covered my guilt, he's covered my shame. There's no more condemnation in Christ. And my eternal punishment that was awaiting for me, he took and that is enough. And I'm still believing that I'll get a share of the pie, the inheritance of the kingdom of God that is awaiting for me. That's the only response to the gospel. But, but look, but, but before we wrap it up and we get to set at the table, here we see these, these two responses, one of rejection and the other one of indifference. But look at the irony of the story here. Here is a man in chains. Talks about freedom and is actually free in Christ. While he's talking to the audience that have no chains and who are actually enslaved. And the man in chains who is speaking about this freedom as desiring for his audience who have no chains, who are enslaved to be free, while the audience is looking at the man's in chains and don't really care about him other than we don't know what to write. What irony. So here's the question for you. Are you still living in darkness? Are your eyes still closed? Are you still under the rule and reign of Satan? Are you still being condemned, feeling the guilt and the shame of your sin? 
worrying about eternal punishment, never being able to accomplish comfort or security, or are you looking to Christ who has set you free from the bondages of your sin, taken you out of darkness into light, taking care of your guilt and your shame and your condemnation and your punishment, knowing that there's a kingdom that is waiting for me that would be satisfying and fulfilling. Look to Christ, flee to Christ, rest in Christ, trust Christ. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you that you sent your Son to open up the eyes of the blind to transfer us who were in darkness into light, who took care of the guilt and shame of our sin, the eternal punishment and the condemnation that was waiting for us, and making us sons and daughters of the King, heirs to the kingdom, And all of this was accomplished through you, Lord Jesus, the source of all of our blessings. And Lord, I pray that we would look to you in faith. We would every single day run to you, flee to you, trust in you, rest in you, believing in you, clinging to you. And Lord, you know everybody in this room You know those who belong to you. You know those who are in darkness and those who are in light. You know those who are under the power of Satan and those who are under your power. So can you take those that are in darkness and those that are under the power of Satan, can you open up their eyes? Can you transfer them out of darkness into light under the power of Satan, under your power? where they can see how their sin has been taken care of on the cross? Can they respond in faith to you and look to you, cling to you, flee to you, run to you, the light of the world, our refuge, our safety, our comfort? As we continue to pray, Our faith to the gospel is not a blind faith. And this communion table is a visual reminder of what our faith is in. So so in other words, what I mean by that is, how, how do I know that my guilt, my shame, my condemnation, and my eternal punishment is taken care of. How do I know that what Jesus did for me taken me out of darkness into light, out of the power of Satan, under the power of God? How do I know? This table is not empty. On this table is the bread and the cup. And what the bread and the cup represents, it reminds us of how Christ's body was broken for us, how his blood was shed for us, the new covenant we have in him. 
So, so sometimes it's hard to have, have faith. And yet the Lord, Lord is gracious. He, he gives you uh, this, this visible representation to remind you of who he is and what he's done for you. So, so I want you to use this time as, as we distribute these elements, use this as a time to meditate on how Christ's body was broken for you, how Christ's blood was shed for you, how he took you out of darkness into light, out from the power of Satan under the power of God. And as you eat it, as you drink it, you're reminded. And you constantly look to him, put your faith in him. If you're in Christ, you get to sit at this table. But then if you're not in Christ, here's the warning. Don't take these things. This does not save you. Only faith in Christ saves you. If you're taking this only to save you, don't because you're eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. You have no right to this table. It is only for those who are in Christ. And I'm not being judgmental. I'm not being mean. I'm doing this in the most loving way because I'd hate to see you eat and drink judgment upon yourself. And then I'm asking you, like, use this time then to repent. Use this time to surrender your life to Christ. Use this time to look to Christ, to see your desperate need for Christ as you turn to him. This is what this table does. It encourages the believer and it convicts the unbeliever. It forces us to look to Christ, either of us remaining in him or if you're not in him, to turn to him. So use this as a time to turn to him. Let me pray and then we'll distribute these elements as we reflect and we meditate on the gospel. Lord, thank you. Store our hearts convict us may we may we realize this wonderful privilege we have in you lord jesus may we be reminded of your body that was broken for us and your blood that was shed for us in jesus name amen i want to show you how this table speaks into your life so many times we feel ourselves falling short we don't feel like we're good enough parents we don't feel like we're good enough spouses. We feel like we're constantly messing up. There's always an area in our life that needs to, to be improved on. We feel like there's a sin we can never shake. And we just feel the guilt and the shame crushing us. And I think what many Christians do is we just give up in our fight against sin. And we just say, you know what, that's just who I am. I'm just always going to wrestle with it. I'm always going to fall short. I'm never going to be good. And as you find yourself wallowing in your own self-pity, going back into sin, Jesus comes up to you. He says, what are you doing? Don't you know what I did for you? how I took care of your guilt and your shame and your condemnation and the eternal punishment. And then you're saying to Jesus, well, how do I know you did that? And he takes this piece of bread. He breaks it. He says, this bread represents my body that was broken for you. Eat it so you can remember what I've done for you. And you eat it. Take it and you eat it. 
But then you're thinking, okay, your body was broken for me. But how do I know that that's sufficient? How, how, how do I know that at the end, I don't have to take care of my guilt, shame, condemnation, eternal punishment? Then he takes this cup. He says, this cup represents my blood that was shed for you. A new covenant, an eternal covenant that is made by my precious blood, which means no one can break this covenant. It's a covenant not made by words, but by blood. Drink it and remember no one can break it. And you take it and you drink it. How do I know my sin has been taken care of? I look to the cross where his body was broken for me. His blood was shed for me. The eternal covenant I have with God. And because I'm in Christ, there's no condemnation. And because of, I'm in Christ, nothing can separate me from him. I am his and he is mine. I am a son and daughter of the king. I am an heir to the kingdom. I am a citizen of his kingdom. I can, because of Christ, fight against my sin because I do not belong to Satan or sin anymore. I've been set free. I can say no to it. I can crucify the desires of my flesh and I can put on this new identity I have in Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that we would realize this new identity we have. Remind us of the richness of the gospel. Let us never give up. Let us not be tossed to and fro by every winds of doctrine, but let us remain firm and stand strong against the evil one. Because we've been bought, we've been set free, and we belong to you. And Lord, for those that are far from you, I am begging you, just like you took a log and beat Paul over the head, Lord, I pray that you would take this log and beat them over the head and say, stop resisting me and submit to me. In the name of Jesus, open up their eyes so that they will be crushed by the weight of their sins as they look to you to take care of it. This is our prayer. Show up, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us stand, let us worship our King.